This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Hello, everyone. You are listening to Speaking of Asia, a podcast from The Straits Times. I'm Ravi Velour, and I'm the paper's senior Asia columnist. In this episode, I speak with the distinguished Australian diplomat, foreign policy expert, and former Australian Member of Parliament, Dave Sharma. Mr. Sharma was one of the youngest to be appointed an Australian ambassador when he was sent to Israel in 2013. After the tenure, he entered direct politics. Until last year, Mr. Sharma used to be the MP for Wentworth, and he was elected to the House of Representatives on a Conservative Party ticket. Mr. Sharma was in the House when Mr. Scott Morrison, the Prime Minister of the time, surprised the world by signing on to a new security arrangement called AUKUS, involving Australia, the United Kingdom, and the United States. A key feature of AUKUS is the sale to Australia of nuclear submarines and the subsequent transfer of technology. AUKUS was stitched together with an eye on what Canberra perceives to be a threat from the North, or China, in other words. Today, the Labour Party holds power in Australia, and Prime Minister Anthony Albanese has just returned from what looks like a successful visit to China, where he met with President Xi Jinping and others down the line. To discuss Australia-China ties under the new regime and what it means for the Indo-Pacific strategy of the Biden administration, I have with me Mr. Sharma, who has not only been a diplomat for his country, but lately a well-followed national commentator. Welcome to Speaking of Asia, Mr. Sharma. Thank you so much for having me on, Ravi. Prime Minister Albanese has just returned from seeing President Xi in Beijing, as well as others. How did the trip go in your assessment? Well, Ravi, I think it was an important stabilisation, would be how I describe it, of the Australia-China relationship. That relationship for Australia has become a more difficult one to manage, and it's been through a period of considerable turbulence. Anthony Albanese's visit to Beijing was the first such visit by an Australian Prime Minister in seven years. That said, I I wouldn't overstate this. I wouldn't call this a reset or something like that. I think there are fundamental structural and other tensions in the relationship which simply didn't exist a decade ago. The truth is our relationship has become harder to manage because in many respects the interests of China have diverged from Australia and particularly how we see the optimal structuring and power relations within the neighbourhood and the norms and rules that underpin it. And I think for that reason, we shouldn't be too rosy-eyed about this visit and what it means for the relationship. It's an important step forward, but I wouldn't describe it as a breakthrough or opening a new chapter or anything of that nature. But were there any highlights in your opinion? Well, there was the release of a Australian-Chinese journalist, which happened a few weeks prior to Prime Minister Albanese's visit, this Australian journalist by the name of Cheng Li, who was a dual Australian-Chinese national, we had always insisted that her detention and charging was without legal basis and without foundation, and she was more a political prisoner, if you like, or a, a hostage of sorts. Her release was an important sign from the Chinese government that they wished to mend fences and put the relationship back on an, an even footing. And Anthony Albanese has come back with assurances as well that a number of the punitive trade measures that have been imposed on certain Australian exports over the last number of years on items like barley and rock lobsters and Australian wine will be lifted. Again, though, we would contest there was no legal basis for having imposed those measures in the first place. So uh, I wouldn't describe us as being you know, necessarily grateful for those things. 
gratitude suggests someone is doing us a favour. We think this is just the proper restoration of normal trading relationships. Dave, did you find it unusual that it's such a significant trip that when Prime Minister arrived in Shanghai, only the vice mayor of the city was there at the airport to receive him? Obviously, the, the Chinese do attach quite an importance to, to protocol and the, the signals they send through protocol measures are meant to be understood and read. And I do believe that was a signal. He, he arrived in Shanghai. The initial leg of his visit was obviously predominantly business and commercial, but he wasn't greeted at a particularly senior level. Now, as Australians, we are not particularly protocol conscious people and we do not tend to take offence at these sorts of things. But I, I certainly noticed it and others in the know about the relationship would have observed that this was intended to be a signal from China about how they see the power structure of this relationship going forward. You did say that this is not a reset of ties with China and the Labour, but what is driving the relationship from the Australian point of view? Well, from the Australian point of view, we recognise that China is a significant power in our neighbourhood and that China, of course, is not going anywhere and we need to find a way to interact and deal with it. We have a quite a comprehensive and sophisticated two-way trade and commercial relationship with China, which is of mutual benefit and of mutual interest. Uh, and the interesting thing, of course, is over these last few years of turbulence when China was imposing trade measures against Australia, Australian export earnings and volumes to China really did not suffer much because China did not touch things like our iron ore exports or um, parts of our coal exports, which are essential to China's own economic growth. It shows you the degree of complementarity. So I would say that for us, we would like a relationship that is open and where channels of dialogue are open. We always believe dialogue is best even when there are points of disagreement. They are better to be discussed frankly and candidly in an attempt found to resolve them. Otherwise, the difference is recognised. But for the last few years, at least, China has not been interested in having this sort of dialogue with Australia. So for us, the important thing is to begin talking again, to have diplomacy again, to have regular interaction between our leaders and our relevant ministers, not necessarily with a view to solving all our differences. I think they're too fundamental to be reconciled in many respects, but with a view to making sure that misunderstandings do not grow and the tension does not grow unnecessarily and that we still have the avenues to resolve points of difference when they can be resolved. Did you think that uh, the Conservatives under Morrison, which your party, went a bit too far with China? Not in my view, no. What we have found certainly in Australia, and I think this has been an experience around the world, is that China under Xi Jinping is a different China than it was 10 or 20 years previously. It's a China that is on the metrics of power is a more significant country on the size of its economy, on its military capabilities, on its ability to project military power but also in terms of its ambition to reshape the region according to its own interests and values. And I think that was at heart the fundamental point of friction. The steps that Australia took that caused concern in China were things like a higher scrutiny applied to foreign investments from state-owned enterprises, including from China, the passage of a Foreign Interference Act, which was designed to lessen and deter influence of foreign and foreign-sponsored actors in Australia's political systems. Measures such as that are what, frankly, annoyed Beijing. Also, I mean, we banned Huawei from our 5G network as well. But I would say the steps we took whilst we were, in many respects, the first Western nation to take some of these steps, they've been followed by a number of others since and we haven't resolved from those at all. So I believe that we took those steps in our national interest. We attempted to explain the basis for them to China. 
China was always going to react adversely to them. And I believe that China's leadership sought to make an example of Australia to, to discourage the others, as they say, because they were concerned that what we were doing would set a precedent. Now, as I've said, we haven't touched those fundamental institutional changes to our national security settings, and we don't intend to, and they've been followed around the world. And I think China, to put myself in their position, I think recognised that we were unlikely to do so. They put us in the doghouse for a few years, so to speak, but now it was time to take us out again. And we've seen this pattern of behaviour, of course, when China has had points of bilateral tension with Japan, with Korea, with Germany, with Norway, any number of countries. They tend to um, respond quite forcefully and speak quite vocally, but you usually find after a few years when, if and when that those tactics of intimidation have not yielded a result, China tends to get back to business. And I think that is what has happened on this occasion. That's very interesting. You did talk about the doghouse, uh, three-year freeze and ties. Were there any lessons that Australia took away from this force in ties? You mentioned that in many ways, Australia stood firm on its principles and you know, not resigned from it in any way. Well, I think the lessons were probably twofold. I think, firstly, our exporters and export industries proved more adaptable and flexible than we perhaps expected. Our exporters in affected sectors found new markets in many respects, which is good for Australia because we've diversified our risk. You never want all of your sales going to one particular customer, no matter what business you're in, and a country is no different. But our exporters were actually quite quick to find new markets. That's not to say that individual producers who were particularly affected by these measures did not suffer, but at a macroeconomic level, it did not particularly impact Australia's export performance. But the other thing that is quite noticeable is how public opinion towards China has shifted quite dramatically over the last five to seven years in Australia. And that change has been accelerated by what Australians saw as China's punitive and bullying trade measures. And in a democracy such as ours, where you need you know, a decent level of public support or public opinion behind you to conduct policy in any level, but including foreign policy, that change in Australian sentiment, I think, allowed the government to do things which perhaps five to 10 years previously, people would have considered to be against our national interest or jeopardising our national interest. If you look at polling now about how the degree of warmth people feel towards the People's Republic of China, I'm not saying people themselves, but the government of China, there is now quite a high degree of mistrust and suspicion about the PRC and its intents towards Australia and to the region more broadly. Dave, you once posted to Washington, D.C., and so you know the United States quite well. Does this visit have any significance for the Indo-Pacific and the Western alliance? I think it does. I think, I mean, what we've seen, obviously, over the last few years is US diplomacy in the Indo-Pacific step up considerably. We've seen, of course, the Quad elevated and institutionalised. This is the four-country grouping involving India, Japan, Australia and the United States. We've had the formation of AUKUS, which you referenced before, which is a tripartite agreement between the United States, the United Kingdom and Australia, initially with the purpose of jointly developing nuclear-powered submarines, but it also has other elements in, in military technology. But we've also seen active US diplomacy to strengthen the relationship with India, to resolve historical differences between Japan and Korea, which have tended to impair that triangular relationship between the US, Japan and Korea. And I think these are all important stabilising features within the region. Australia plays an important role there as, as a sort of a southern anchor, if you like, of, of some of those networks of relationships. 
But it's important that we have our own relationship with Beijing that's conducted separately of the United States. We share close interests and values with the United States, but we are our own independent country and we take decisions in our own interests. And I believe that Australia having its own perspectives and interactions with China is a useful additional channel of dialogue which should help stabilise great power relations in the region. We wouldn't presume to act as an intermediary, if you like, between the US and China. That's not our role and it's not a purpose for which we're well equipped, but it's important we have our own relationship with China with a degree of trust and candour in it. Dave, thank you for bringing up the Quad and for explaining to our listeners what is the Quad. Before I ask you about the Quad, I want to touch on AUKUS a little bit. Today, there are deep worries in your country about AUKUS, whether it's a viable deal, or whether you'll get the submarines, the two submarines that were supposed to be handed over around 2030. Has the consensus around AUKUS collapsed? And I heard your former minister, foreign minister, Bob Carr, say that the consensus has collapsed in Australia about AUKUS. Is that correct? No, it's it's not correct. There are some people who are opposed to it and, and were opposed to it at the time, and I believe Bob Carr was one of them, but we do have a Labor government now. Bob Carr is a former Labor foreign minister, and traditionally it has been the Labor government in Australia that has been, firstly, a little more reluctant to embrace the US alliance, and secondly, quite hostile to nuclear in all its forms, whether it's civilian nuclear energy or nuclear-powered submarines. So the fact that you have a centre-left government in control in Australia, which is enshrined AUKUS, if you like, and made it the centrepiece, I think shows you there's a high degree of bipartisan consensus. That said, though, I mean, AUKUS is a very complicated and difficult and challenging arrangement. As part of the deal, we we are, as as you point out, meant to be taking two Virginia-class nuclear-powered submarines off US production lines before we then with the United Kingdom construct and build a new class of submarine as well. Now, each of those steps is difficult. Firstly, the US production lines are at Bassity, and so Australia taking two off the production line means that US industrial capability has to lift to make sure that they're not left in deficit themselves. But then, of course, building and constructing an entirely new design of one of the most sophisticated things that a human can build is not without its challenges either. And I think Obviously, the price tag is high and it's a complicated build because it's going to be built, well, there will be some built in Australia under this arrangement and some built in UK shipyards as well. And that adds to the degree of complexity as well. Do you think your country did the right thing by uh, switching out the French and uh, going for American and British uh, technology? I think we absolutely did the right thing in in seeking to acquire nuclear-powered submarines. I mean, I, I was an advocate of this before AUKUS was announced. I think there have some of us who've been advocating for this for a number of years, but the, the difficulty was we were never certain or indeed even sure that the US or the UK would share with us the sensitive nuclear propulsion technology. But just given Australia's geography, we're a large state with a large amount of coastal waters to patrol, but the truth is that most of the risks to our security will emerge quite far from Australian shores. So having conventionally powered submarines is not optimal for our own strategic circumstances. As you know, a nuclear-powered submarine can stay at sea for much longer. The main limit really is the endurance of the crew and the ability to carry food. It can loiter for much longer. It can travel at higher speeds. All of those things are valuable to a nation like Australia and Conventionally powered submarines were always a second best choice for Australia. And 
In other domains of military technology, you know, fighter aircraft, for instance, we've never hesitated to to buy the best of that particular generation. We've now got well, we've we've got seventy two joint strike fighters or the F-35 on their way to Australia. And it never made much sense to me that on submarines, which is an important tool and particularly an important asymmetric tool for a nation like Australia that is not a peer military power of China or some of the other countries in the region, sophisticated submarines can help level the playing field, if you like, and it never made much sense to me that we were taking a suboptimal capability in that regard. Dave, you brought up the Quad a little while earlier, and Prime Minister Albanese has just returned from uh, Beijing. Later this month, we expect uh, President Joe Biden to meet with President Xi Jinping in San Francisco. How is the Quad progressing, and do you see a likely pause now that there's so much activity with China going on? No, I think the Quad will continue. I mean, it's it's important to understand that the Quad is is a long way from a formal military alliance. It, it doesn't have any institutional documents or founding charters or treaty-level agreements underpinning it. So it's not like a new NATO or something like that. It is more an informal grouping, which has a degree of structure to it, leaders-level meetings, defence minister meetings, foreign minister meetings, joint military exercises from time to time as well. But it allows countries with quite different perspectives and quite different interests and which would define their foreign policy quite differently to coordinate on some of the biggest challenges facing the Indo-Pacific. India, for instance, is obviously historically it's pursued a non-aligned foreign policy and India still remains, would not consider itself part of the Western alliance system, but we nonetheless share important interests and values and the Quad provides an important mechanism for us to discuss shared interests of concern. And notwithstanding the improvement in relations with Beijing that Australia has gone through and the United States, to a degree, is also improving its relationships with Beijing, I think the Quad is a useful mechanism and and it's likely to continue. And in many respects, you, you would find, I think, that the formation of the Quad and the formation of AUKUS and some of these other regional initiatives has actually compelled Beijing to be more cooperative in its regional diplomacy than might have otherwise been the case. That's very interesting. In which case, can I ask you about another quad, a mini quad taking shape in the region that involves the US, Japan, EU, and the Philippines? What is your assessment of this new little quad taking place in our neighborhood? Well, again, we're countries that have treaty level security agreements with the United States. Japan and the Philippines is a little different to our own, but we're all treaty allies of the United States. But particularly given our geography, you know, we cover the approaches to East Asia, the maritime approaches to East, East Asia, Japan through its southern island chain, the Philippines, and then down to Australia. Uh, and obviously, we have seen in recent years quite aggressive attempts by China to upset stability in the South China Sea, to engage in land reclamation, to make territorial claims which are without basis under the UN Convention of the Law of the Sea, but also Chinese quasi-military vessels to engage in harassment of fishing vessels. And the Philippines in particular has borne the brunt of that around places like Scarborough Shoal. So I think this is an important indication of our joint resolve to cooperate in pushing back on any of those sorts of challenges, which might overturn what we see has been an overwhelmingly beneficial status quo in the South China Sea. Dave, to wrap up this very useful conversation with you, very interesting remarks. Can I take you back to the Albanese uh, Xi Jinping uh, summit? And how would you describe the Australia-China relationship in the aftermath of the trip? I would say that the relationship is, is is now benefiting from some clear air, I guess would be how I'd describe it. The air has been cleared. There should now be more normal dialogue. 
But as I said, I wouldn't describe it as a reset. I think it's it's a helpful laying down of arms or hostilities. We need to see, particularly from our perspective in Australia, that China follows through on its commitments to drop its punitive trade measures. We've been led to believe that will happen soon. But I think what we'll see is a is a resumption of normal dialogue, but certainly the relationship is not going to be restored to what it was in 2017 or even 2012. I think China has changed too much for that. The world has changed too much for that. And the points of friction, the fundamental points of friction are likely to remain. Nevertheless, laying down the farms, as you called it. Dave Sharma, thank you so much for coming and speaking of Asia. Thank you so much for having me on, Ravi. And that's a wrap for Speaking of Asia, a podcast series by The Straits Times. I'm Ravi Velour. Don't forget to share this podcast with your friends and family. If you'd like to read my articles, we have links in our podcast show notes below. That was a podcast by The Straits Times. Send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. For more podcasts by The Straits Times, The Business Times, and Money FM 89.3, you can also download the audio by SPH app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O.